Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explorer exodus. I'm Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And today we have reached chapter 17 of this fine book of Exodus. Uh, 17? I think our shortest chapter yet. Uh, yeah, so uh, don't don't convince yourselves that this means it's going to be a short podcast, dear listeners. It might be, but we make no promises being who we are. I think it just sounds like more time for us to uh, fill the space with our own words. Exactly. <laughs> well, we'll try and make them meaningful words. Uh, so starting verse one, and all the community of Israelites journeyed onward from the wilderness of sin on their journeys by the Lord's direction. And they encamped at Rephidim and there was no water for the people to drink. Okay. So this is a familiar setup. We got something like this in the last chapter. Yeah. Yeah, this is happening a lot. Um, wilderness of sin, I, I have no idea if that's where the word in English sin comes from, but I imagine it is. Does it have any special significance in Judaism? It does not. It is a place. And in fact, the word that we would use for sin is uh, hate, which has no connection to the word hate. And is it a similar concept to sin in Christianity? What does sin mean in Judaism? So sin in Judaism, it's actually a notion, it's, it's an uh, archery term. It means to have missed the mark. Yeah, okay. Uh, so there's this fundamental idea, and it's one of the, the big differences, I think, between Christianity and Judaism. We don't have a notion of original sin. Right. And so there's not an idea that people are inherently sinful. There is a notion that in a broken, imperfect world, no one can be perfect. And so sin are those ways that we are not the best version of ourselves at every moment of every day. Uh, and the obligation, sometimes it's translated as repentance, but actually the, the word in Hebrew is tshuva, which means to return. Mm -hmm. uh, and the obligation is to recognize that dif distance, sort of the distance between uh, the person we have been and the person God sees when God looks at us. Uh, and to rectify that difference moving forward. I would say... In contemporary Christianity, at least in the mainline, fairly progressive churches, the, the understanding is the same as what you just described. Yeah. We, do, we don't spend a lot of time concentrating on original sin, per se, or thinking that we're all born evil. Um, but at the same time, you know, that missing the mark is a real thing, particularly when it means waking up in the morning and, um, you know, putting on shirts that... that people who are underpaid and, and underprivileged labor on or you know, yeah. fossil fuels or whatever, you know, we all seem to be aware now of our connections in ways that makes it really hard for us to say that, that we are ever perfect in any, any substantial way. Yeah, that's the truth. That's the truth. Um, hmm. Okay. So they, they're wandering through the wilderness of sin, which is just a place at this point. Just a place. Uh-huh. Um, though I feel like it would be a good bar name too, Wilderness of Sin. Uh, it, it might be not not the kind of bar I would probably go into. That would be a little intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'd be afraid they'd serve me a Mickey as soon as I went through the door. But uh, yeah, there you go. Um, it's like a, this is something like a, a 1920s Chicago type bar. Um, exactly. Okay. Do we have any idea where Rephidim is? I don't know where Rephidim, but I am going to trust that Rabbi Google can answer that question for us quickly. Seems to be it's in the Sinai Peninsula somewhere. 
Yeah, okay. Like so many things in uh like so many things towards the south. Yeah. 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 You know, one of one of the interesting things from Jewish tradition is that these places are intentionally not marked or intentionally hard to find. Hmm. Uh sort of like Moses's burial space. Okay. Uh, that the whole point of the wilderness narrative is that it happened over there in the wilderness. Uh as in a place that you can't go to. Right. Right. And why would you want to really, why would you want to return to a state of wilderness after having left it? Yeah. Though you can totally imagine uh, Moses's grave becoming a site of pilgrimage. Yeah. Uh, right. It's sort of the opposite of the whole idea or the inverse of the whole idea of uh, how they took bin Laden's body and dropped it at sea so that it couldn't become a site of pilgrimage. Right. Right. Uh, in Christianity, we just solve this by having Jesus ascend into heaven so that there are no relics of Jesus because he, there is no dead body. Huh. So huh. Yeah, similar, similar impact though, right? You yeah. can't, you can't create an idol out of the place or of the physical that that's right. That's right. Okay. So they're wandering through the wilderness of sin, uh, beset by small dogs and um, I'm just commenting on the background noise. Uh, okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Is my dog barking in the crate showing through? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, okay. And the people disputed with Moses and they said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you dispute with me? And why do you test the Lord? And the people thirsted for water there. And the people murmured against Moses and said, why is it you brought us up from Egypt to bring death on me and my children and my livestock by thirst? So they they do this thing again, uh, right, where uh, the people are complaining to Moses, and Moses immediately says, hey, mm-hmm. why are you questioning God? Right, exactly. He's just passing the buck up the chain. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh, man. Uh, nobody try that at home. You're not Moses. That being, <laughs> that being said, what they're grumbling about doesn't seem unreasonable. Right? No, I not mean, having water, uh, yeah. We, we can't live long without water. Right. Going on from verse four. And Moses called out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? Yet a little more and they will stone me. Which seems pretty rough. And the Lord's, or, go ahead. No, I, I was just thinking about that, right? So it sounds pretty rough, but when people start losing the things they need to literally live, when you're when you don't have security of hours, I mean we're not just talking days and weeks security here. We're talking about hours, mm-hmm. um, right? I mean they turn into a mob, right? Right. So the the what did we say it is something like one point two million people are close to rioting uh, in a wilderness where they have no water, but they have plenty of stones. So this should be of some concern. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Um, now you know a little more serious with this though uh you know when you look at the sociological examinations of the impact of climate change one of the things that scientists uh, uh suspect will happen are an increase of war both on a national scale and in a very local uh scale and a breakdown of civilization that as the basic necessities of life move and change uh, and become unavailable in some places uh, that will have very real political ramifications. Right. Uh, And 
it's hard for us to imagine a, a miracle like Moses is about to perform to save us from that. Yeah. Yeah. Though more and more, aren't we counting on a miracle of science to save us? Yeah, I guess we are. Um, I don't know whether we should be or not, but yeah, yeah. I think that's probably true. Uh, okay. And the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of Israel's elders and the staff with which you struck the Nile, take it in your hand and go. Look, I'm about to stand before you on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out from it and the people will drink. And thus did Moses do before the eyes of Israel's elders. So it's, it's interesting what he does here, right? Moses or, or God instructs Moses to take the accoutrements of or, or the decor, decorations uh, that have existed that the people associate with their freedom so far, mm-hmm. right? The elders from Israel who have helped to lead them, and in particular, this rod, right? The, the visual reminders and cues uh, suggesting that things will be okay. Right, and also uh, the, really the the sign of his leadership. Um, and the sign of his leadership, yeah. Yeah, I have a note here in Robert Alter who says, uh, as both Rashi and Abraham Ibn Ezra note, this might well be a direct response to Moses' expression of fear that the people will kill him. Passing before the enraged people would be rather like running the gauntlet, and it is this that God compels him to do as a prelude to the demonstration of divine saving power. So this is pretty gutsy, uh, and it's a hard demand of God, for God to make of Moses. Yeah, to walk through. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, the jeering that he must have encountered and the threats and the, right? Right, right. Um, Looking to the side and seeing that somebody's already picked up a stone and is kind of lightly tossing it in their hand. This is a rough moment uh, for Moses to to go through. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and he does all of this in the side of the elders, right? It's also the other leadership who have to see this uh, sort of public humiliation of Moses at some level. Or at least that Moses uh, is a leader who will face down the mob. I mean, yeah, that uh, okay, yeah, yeah, I like that look. I, yeah. I like that. Yep. I was thinking more uh, uh, sort of Game of Thrones, Circe, but you know, no, okay. I don't think it's that. I think it's uh, it's more facing them down, making them feel ashamed. I mean, he's carrying the staff that has led them out of Egypt, with which he parted the waters of the Nile. Uh, it, I think it's all to make a point. Right. <laughs> like, okay. I like it. When will you people learn to trust? Um, okay. And thus did Moses do before the eyes of Israel's elders. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah testing and dispute for the disputation of the Israelites and for their testing the Lord saying is the Lord in our midst or not. Uh, so they should know, they should know that the Lord is with them. And now we come to what is really going to be the theme. You, you see, dear listeners, how we got through at least half the chapter in about 12 minutes. Uh, but we have now come to what's going to be the major theme for the day. Uh, so, Daniel, do you want to give us some some um, prefacing comments? Yes. Yeah, so let's read verse 8 first. Uh, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Uh, so uh, Amalek is one of these... Uh, tribes that show up over and over again in the Torah, in the first five books of Moses. But they end up taking on a really outsized role 
in the Jewish imagination. Uh, and part of that is we, we keep having a commandment over and over again. You find it in the Torah to wipe out Amalek, that you're supposed to wipe them out. You're supposed to wipe out their descendants. You're supposed to wipe out their women and their children and their livestock. And you're supposed to wipe out even their memory uh, that they exist, which, by the way, is sort of ironic when you think about it, because the only way, reason we know Amalek now is we're commanded to, <laughs> to destroy their memory. <laughs> exactly. Um, right. Uh, it's the obligation to destroy their memory that keeps them alive at some level. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, Amalek is this tribe uh, that is wandering the wilderness. And, and we know by looking at the rest of the Hebrew Bible that uh, during this wandering, and certainly once uh, you enter the book of Joshua and are in the, uh, the land itself, uh, there are all these different tribes that the Israelites go to war with. Uh, the difference with Amalek is we're told that Amalek always attacks the rear of the encampments. Hmm. Uh, that right. We've talked about this, that uh, the Torah says there are 600,000 men who flee from Egypt, Jewish men, Israelite men. Uh, so you figure, you know, if you have an equal number of women uh, plus children and uh, the elderly and we're told all sorts of non-Jews came as well, these Gerim, uh, you know, you're talking about a group that's probably 2 million or so. Uh, so if you start thinking about them traveling through the wilderness, they're naturally going to sort themselves out where the strongest are going to end up at the front and the weakest and most vulnerable and infirm are going to end up in the back. And what we're told is distinctive about Amalek is that Amalek, unlike every other tribe, always attacks the rear always attacks the place where the sick and the weak and the young and the old are. Um, and so they become really outsized in the Jewish imagination and become the closest thing that we have to, uh, at least what I understand to be notions of Satan, uh, where evil in the world, particularly external evil is understood through this lens of Amalek. So evil is that which attacks the weak. Evil is that which attacks the vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Okay. Exactly. Um, and so that's what we get with Amalek. And, you know, the, there's all sorts of really interesting uh, stories that emerge from this. Uh, so uh, do you want to read us this one from the Talmud here? Uh, sure. Okay. And... Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore to Eliphaz Amalek. Ooh, so he so this is... comes from... Okay, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say this comes from the book of Genesis, 36.12. Okay, and so Amalek then is Esau's grandson. Yeah, That's and just comes. like almost every other tribe that we find in the Hebrew Bible, we also get these origin stories that emerge from a single individual and then become tribes. Yeah. And that's what we're getting here. Okay. Um, which is a little hard for me. I, I imagine that Jacob is considered to be kind of one of the great heroes. But, of course, throughout that entire story, Esau is a wronged party. So yeah, it's, it's a little unfair to pour Esau on his descendants. Uh, but going on, Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, examined biblical narratives to prove them worthless. Thus he jeered, had Moses nothing better to write than, and Lotan's sister was Timnah, and Timnah was concubine to Eliphaz. What indeed is the Torah's purpose in writing, and Lotan's sister was Timnah? 
Okay, so this, this is a comment that if you've ever been in a, a Bible study class, someone has made, which is, yeah. why do they keep saying the same thing over and over again in different ways? Or why did they bother to put this line in there? Yep. Uh, and that's the objection that's being raised here. Right, right. That's the objection. Uh, and does it, let's see, does it go on to counter that objection? So yes, now we'll get our resolution. Okay. Timna was a royal princess, as it is written, that's Genesis thirty six twenty nine. Duke Lotan. Desiring to become a proselyte, she went to Abraham. Mm-hmm. Uh, she went to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they did not accept her. So she went and became a concubine to Eliphaz, the son of Esau, saying, I would rather be a servant to this people than a mistress of another nation. From her was descended Amalek, who afflicted Israel. Why so? Because they should not have pushed her away. Ooh, that's good. So the rejection of Timnah leads to the affliction of Israel. Yeah, right. Um, And this is a theme you find throughout the Talmud, which is the notion that small acts of hate, and in particular sort of baseless hatred between people, have the ability to send reverberations through time and space uh, that cause much greater hate and much much greater damage than any original action, that, that hate multiplies is the basic idea. Um, that also is part of my understanding of sin. I don't know if that's part of, of a J- Jewish understanding, but... No, keep going. I, I'm totally interested. Well, there's this whole question, and actually we'll get to it a little bit later in Exodus 20, uh, you know, where God is giving the commandments and says, you know, those who I hate or who hate me, um, you know, will be cursed until like the something generation, you know, their sons and their grandsons, et cetera. So um, we were actually talking about that in Bible study last night and talking about this idea that the sins of the father um, will reverberate onto the son. And what a kind of gross idea that really is. It doesn't seem fair at all, but it is true that, uh, you know, the way you raise your children will probably affect the way they raise their children um, and other things, right? So that when we look at personal problems, social ills, et cetera, uh, we can trace at least some of them back uh, to sin that has been enacted upon that person, Hmm. to hatred that's been enacted upon them. So... Hmm. Yeah, if you think of it psychologically, right, the, the sins of one generation are borne by the next generation often, all too often. Right. I mean, and and I don't think one wants to say that that means they're just stuck with them forever, right? Like, I don't think we want to be deterministic about it because there are certainly people who get past that, which is a beautiful and good thing, um, you know, who, like, choose to act in a different way or to overcome their problems so that they can treat others with greater love. Um, but, you know, just that idea of reverberating on kindness or even cruelty having its uh, continuing effect on the world, I think is, I think it's profound in any faith really. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we could call that like the, the Timna effect or something if we want The Timna effect. Yeah. In fact, yeah, there's a uh, whole long narrative in the Hebrew Bible, or excuse me, in the Talmud, uh, asking the question, why was Jerusalem destroyed by the Romans? Mm-hmm. And it begins, the story begins with an act where 
a wealthy noble is throwing a dinner party and accidentally invites uh, the wrong guy who has a very similar name to the guy who he wanted to invite, who's instead someone he does not like. When this uninvited guest or accidentally invited guest shows up thinking it's a uh, attempt at peacemaking, actually, mm-hmm. and he is asked to leave, uh, that sets off a chain of reaction that eventually leads to the destruction of Jerusalem. Huh. Um, right, which I don't think they mean literally in the Talmud, but is sort of a meditation on the power of hate to breed more hate. Right. Right. That makes me think of like dinner parties in academic settings, <laughs> which is the closest corollary I have to that, where like inviting totally. the wrong person could be a big problem. <laughs> so. Totally. Okay. So, okay. So we have, we now know where Amalek comes from and we have an understanding that Amalek is the result of an initial unkindness um, and that Amalek it means those who attack the weak. Should we go on with the scripture or should we investigate Amalek a little bit more? So, you know, just one more note on Amalek, because when we look at it in the Bible, Amalek is pretty clearly a tribe or in contemporary language, maybe an ethnicity. Uh-huh. Uh, and one of the very first moves that the rabbis do in their tradition is to totally remove the ethnic component from Amalek. Uh, that, uh, one of the early moves really probably from about 2000 years ago is to say that Amalek has dispersed amongst the nation. So that there are no individuals anymore who are Amalek, which first of all, gets rid of the obligation to kill some random person you see on the street who happens to be a part of this particular tribe, mm-hmm. which, you know, problematic. Yeah. Um, but what it creates instead is a notion that Amalek is in ideology rather than in ethnicity. And it is an ideology that uh, says that targeting the vulnerable is acceptable practice for our own survival and thriving. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that becomes changed uh, as we enter into sort of the modern era. Uh, and instead, the Hasidic movement says that Amalek is never something external. You can't point to any group or any ideology. You can't say that political party or that movement or whatever is Amalek. All you can say is that Amalek is an inclination within each of us and that each of us have that ability to target the vulnerable and justify its benefit to ourselves. Uh, into that fundamentally is Amalek and therefore the obligation to destroy Amalek wherever you encounter it is the obligation to destroy the Amalek that we have within ourselves. Interior Amalek. Interior Amalek, which is, as I understand it, has some relationship to how many Christians understand Satan. Is that fair to say? Uh, no, I actually don't think so. I think it, Satan is usually understood as an exterior force. Um, and, and those who don't understand it that way, I think in general, don't actually really believe in Satan much at all. I, Got it. I think we are, again, more in the realm of talking about sin than we are Satan. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and, and kind of the daily uh, struggle against sin, I think, would be part of that. So, uh, okay. So, so we have this group, Amalek. You are supposed to, or this state of being, Amalek, 
and you are supposed to fight against it within yourself. Are you given any tools for doing that? So not any specific tools. Um, you know, it, it becomes really a constant battle of recognizing that each of us do this, that we all do this, that we all find people who are victims and we treat them like they are the villains and we justify taking advantage of them that way. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, we do this societally, whether we're talking about people of color in the United States or we're talking about Muslim minority in India, or we're talking about, you know, almost anywhere in the world, this seems to be a feature. Or conversely, we offend somebody and then we try and think of reasons why it was their fault. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. Um, because we can't admit to the fact that we, that we have this Amalek inside of us that we, you know, we want to see ourselves as fully righteous. Oh, I love that. Um, so going along a little with that, uh, one midrash here from Tanhuma on Amalek, it says Amalek is an expression denoting heat and cold. Uh, they're doing some, uh, uh, playing with the words here. Uh, the idea is that Amalek cooled you off and made you appear tepid after you were boiling hot and the nations then uh, were no longer afraid to fight you. Uh, or to say it differently, this can be compared to a bathtub of boiling water into which no living creature could descend. Along came an irresponsible man, jumped in headlong into it, and although he scalded himself, he succeeded in making others think that it was cooler than it really was. Huh. Uh, right. The, the great sin of Amalek is that it creates a culture in which Amalek is okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really true. And I, I mean, do you feel, I, I guess I'll speak for myself. I feel that we live in that culture right now. Um, not to be a scold or anything, but you know, it's hard not to hear this and think about survival of the fittest, you know, Spencer and, and all these ideas of, of doing away with those who are weaker than us, uh, sometimes totally. for the good of the species, supposedly. Uh, yeah. And, and that gradually those ideas seep in and we sometimes even when we state that we don't believe in them, we kind of act as if we do. Yeah. It's the normalization of evil. Right. Uh, right. What was it? Hannah Arendt uh, called it the, um, the banality of evil. The banality of evil, right? That right. step by step, it just becomes normal. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah, so Amalek is not a small thing at all. This is a, a maybe in terms of the the Hebrews in the desert, this is the greatest threat that we've encountered, really. And it's, you know, we did this with our Bible study at St. John's a few weeks ago, and I think we just kind of passed over it. Um and, and then kind of poo-pooed the warlikeness of of the Hebrews. Yeah. So, because let's get to that warlikeness. Do you want to you want to read about what their solution to Amalek is right here? Yes, yes. Uh, we are in verse nine. Uh, so Moshe said to Joshua, "Pick some men for us and go out and do battle with Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand." Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Then, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, but whenever he let it out on his hand, Amalek prevailed. Then Moses' hands grew heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur 
one on each side, supported his hands. Thus, his hands remained steady until the sun set. And Joshua overwhelmed the people of Amalek with the sword. Okay, there's a lot of strange things going on here. A lot of strange. Um, again, you know, that staff is necessary, right? Like the symbol of power and that you should trust in God is there. But what is the arms up and arms down thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So two, two midrashim here for you. Um, the first is that uh, it's sort of an apologetic for the magical quality. Uh, right, uh-huh. but lots of the rabbis are uncomfortable with that, and so there becomes a story that says it's not that Moses raising the staff had magical properties; it's that when Moses raised the staff, all the Israelites would see it and would remember uh, that God had led them out of Egypt, and they could have confidence in themselves. Mm-hmm. And when Moses's staff dropped, they would forget this. Um, so, explanation number one. Uh, but the Midrash I really like here dealing with Amalek is that Moshe was really uncomfortable with the idea of massacring Amalek. Hmm. Even this people that had done terrible evil and continued to do terrible evil, Moshe was uncomfortable with the war here. And so his hands dropping, at least according to this Midrash, are not about uh, sort of a loss of strength. I mean, it, that's how I always thought of it is, right? It's really hard to keep your hands in the air for a long time. Um, uh, but instead, it's a discomfort that Moses has with this destruction and this war. And it ends up being a jumping off point for a really, you know, 3,000 years of Jewish discussion about when when is a small evil acceptable on the understanding that it will prevent a greater evil in the future, right? It becomes sort of the Jewish version of if you had a time machine, would it be okay to murder an infant Hitler? Right. Um, And, you know, much like that, those sorts of questions in philosophy, that's never resolved in Judaism. It just becomes the jumping off point for that discussion. Yeah. In some ways it can't be resolved. Um, So, okay. So we are left with a kind of moral quandary, which we all just kind of live in. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's the beauty of the Hebrew Bible. Right. It doesn't ever resolve those moral quandaries. It just says, yep, and we live in them too. Right. We're stuck within them. Uh, Okay. So another question kind of veering to the side. Is this the first time we've heard of Joshua in Exodus? Is this the first time we've heard of Joshua? I don't think so. I think we've encountered him before. Maybe. I don't know. Um, I, I don't remember encountering him before, but, but because he is so central, I mean, he's got his own book, you know, one, one would think that he kept popped up before, but he, I mean, he's kind of the war leader, right? Yeah. Right. He's the next generation of leadership. Uh, he's yeah. the one who leads the people in the promised land. Right. Right. Um, so it makes sense because his his role will be one of conquest. It makes sense then that this would be his first appearance. And you are right, it appears. Yeah. All right. Exodus 17, right. 8 through 16 is the first time that Joshua appears uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Okay. So how is Joshua thought of in, in contemporary Judaism? You know, he's the next generation. Uh, is really how he's thought of. And and so he becomes representative of uh, in some ways political realities, whereas okay. Moses is 
an aspirational image of almost perfection. Uh-huh. Uh, Joshua becomes the one who has to deal with actual political life in a land. Hmm. Um, I, I had a teacher in Jerusalem, Micha Goodman, brilliant guy. He likes to say that the Hebrew Bible uh, isn't the story that Israel needs to follow in order to be successful. That Hebrew Bible is the story of all the failures we need to watch out to make sure we don't repeat. Right. Um, and that becomes sort of Joshua. Joshua becomes the one who has to deal with uh, the reality of the situation and the uncomfortable moral quandaries that aren't clear. And he doesn't have that same relationship with the divine. He's living much more in the um, uh, uh, corporeal world. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking about it. I can't remember any specific place where we get the thought process of Joshua. Or we get Joshua wrestling with his destiny or his call. Mm. Uh, he seems just willing to go and do it, as far as I remember. Yeah, he's a much simpler character in some ways. Right, right. Um, so he is the war leader, and here he is leading the war. Um and going on from verse 14, and the Lord said to Moses, write this down as a remembrance and a record and put it in Joshua's hearing that I will surely wipe out the name of Adalek from under the heavens. I, I love this, that there's already this concern for how it will be remembered. Right. Right. I mean, I, I sort of like to think of Washington fighting the American uh, Revolution and having an awareness of how will history remember this too? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that it has to be put in Joshua's hearing. It's, it's almost like, uh, he's receiving kind of marching orders for all time. What will you do with your life? You will wipe out Amalek wherever you find it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a whole debate, uh, in Judaism today. Does this mean, uh, right? We're told to inscribe this as a document, as a reminder. Does this mean that, every day this should be the focus of every Jewish life. Mm. And there are those who say that, that say that the focus needs to be about wiping out our enemies. And there are those who say Amalek should only be remembered once every year or two because of the danger involved in becoming focused on your enemies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would think it would make for a hard life to, to be completely taken up with destroying your enemies, whether internal or external. Yeah. Um, okay. Moses built an altar and he called its name Yahweh Nisi. The Yay. Lord is my banner. Yahweh. Okay. So we, we just put Adonai there, but yep, that works. Okay. And he said, for hand upon Yah throne, war for the Lord against Amalek from all time. Um, so this is the first altar they've built in the wilderness too, that we know of. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And you know, this, this act of building altars or setting up stones to commemorate things we haven't really seen since Genesis. Um, and it almost feels to me like that's because the story is a return to that kind of tribal identity, tribal warfare identity that, that we saw with Abraham so often. I mean, Moses meets God at the burning bush and doesn't put up a stone there, right? <laughs> like, 
you know, the other way to think of this, I think, too, is uh, it is also a return to ancient customs and a casting off of Egyptian customs. Ooh, yeah, that's good. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But this ending, right? The Lord will be at war with Amalek throughout the ages. Uh, from this, we get the notion that Amalek returns in every generation. Uh-huh. That Amalek is not an enemy that can ever be wiped out. We are never going to eliminate the targeting of the vulnerable. No matter the stories we tell ourselves, no matter how much progress we think we have made, this has been uh, uh, sort of my mantra in these political times, uh, that we were never promised utopianism. And in fact, what we were promised is that Amalek would return again and again in every generation and that in every generation we would have to stand up and fight against Amalek. That has a very uh, fantasy fiction ring to it. Totally, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I am so much more comfortable with the idea of that as an internal struggle than as an external struggle. And yet our weapons might change, but I think it is true that it remains an external struggle as well. Yeah, 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 right. Um, that's why I like that notion of ideology is Amalek too. Uh-huh. Uh, because the obligation to wipe out evil ideology doesn't mean an obligation to wipe out the human beings who have been indoctrinated in that ideology. Right. Right. Um, and how often do we combine those two things? But does that mean that we should all be on Reddit boards all the time? Um, confronting that ideology and fighting it there. <laughs> I, I mean, my, my experience has been that the place that you really convince people that they're wrong is on Facebook and Reddit, right? I mean, that's, that's yeah, really that's... meaningful change happens. <laughs> right. But isn't that also where the ideology is most propagated? I, you know, this yeah. is, this is the challenge of our times is that because the ideology is propagated in new ways, uh, we have not yet developed any kind of new way for confronting it. Though, interestingly, right, we're, we're recording this in the week after Facebook announced major changes to its platform in part to counter the problem we're talking about. Just as long as they keep sending me ads to buy razors and toothbrushes I don't need, I'm fine. I don't, I don't think you need to be worried about a lack of ads. I, uh, yeah, yeah. That's an ideology in its own, too. Yes, it is. <laughs> anyway, it may not be the, the most Amalekie of all Amaleks out there. Uh, okay. Well, we have come to the end of the chapter, Daniel. Um, 39 minutes, was, 59 se- Oh, now we're at 40 minutes. Too late. Oh, oh well. Yeah. Uh, this was a depressing one, I have to say. Sorry, dear listeners, but when you're talking about the nature of evil, it's hard not to feel a little down. I See, that's why I sometimes double down on the sci-fi quality of it um, or the fantasy quality of it, as you said. There is an element of thinking of ourselves as out there fighting against the forces which target the vulnerable, which I have always found personally um, inspiring in a sort of, you know, Tolkien-esque way. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as it, we remember that Amalek doesn't represent individuals and it doesn't represent groups of people and that Amalek is found just as easily within myself as it is within someone else. And that it's really easy to become Amalek while you think you are fighting Amalek. 
Right. Uh, I, I, I don't know if the sci-fi and fantasy thing is, is all that for me, I don't think it's all that comforting at the present moment. Um, yeah. I, although, um, I think it is good to say that we need kind of heroic narratives of how this is done. And, and in this week that had MLK day, uh, I think we can point to some really powerful heroic narratives from the past century about how to confront Amalek without losing yourself in the bargain. Yeah. Rose, um, can we say that Rosa Parks sitting down on a bus was confronting Amalek? Sure we can. Yeah. Um, we can say that sitting at lunch counters was, or, or going and registering voters in the South was, um, or a little bit of plug, uh, 30 rabbis getting arrested yesterday in the Capitol protesting the deportation of dreamers. Right. Definite co- uh, confrontation of Amalek without a doubt. So our, our weapons change, our tools change, but the call remains the same. But does Judaism, Daniel, have any great explanation for why this continues? Like, why why can evil not be vanquished for once and for all? You know, for Judaism, it's basically the human condition. Uh, we have a notion that this is a broken world. It's not a fallen world, but it's a world that hasn't, finished being built and we are a part of the process ideally of finishing the construction of creation, perfecting creation. Uh, and so the, the, the fault lines and what we would call the evil that we encounter over and over again, generationally, uh, can really be understood as a human fault, uh, that we haven't fixed the problem yet. And because we haven't fixed the problem, we are the ones who are obligated to get to work at it. So it's not necessarily an endless cycle. There is some possibility of, of completion. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, much of Jewish messianism is after the fact recognition of messianism, if that makes sense. Uh, so that there's not, or to say it differently, Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew, uh, Christos in Greek, uh, is not a title that someone, uh, is born with. It's not a state of being, but instead becomes, uh, a title that you earn upon having fixed the world. Um, and so it's, it's always an aspirational belief in the ability to fix this all and sort of a reality that says that we can only make incremental progress within our own lives. Uh huh. Right. Okay. So it's not hopeless. Um, do you have any kind of what we would call eschatology? That is a, a vision of the ending. You know, there's lots of Jewish eschatologies uh, without there being any one definitive one. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point where some don't believe in eschatology. There's a sort of notion that messianism is always like uh, uh, that old math uh, word asymptote, uh, right? The, the curve that is always approaching a number, but never reaches it. Uh, sort of, uh, uh, if you always take, go half the distance to the wall, you'll never actually touch the wall. Yeah. Uh, that becomes a, a core notion, particularly in uh, reform and conservative Judaism, uh, that the messianic moment, the utopian world is always and forever out of reach. And part of that is because it's an ever moving target. And our obligation then is to always be moving closer without losing 
um, faith in our ability to make progress, even if progress is never perfection. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that is a, that's a real difference between Christianity and, and Judaism. I think, I think even like, uh, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of a kind of Christianity that doesn't hold out for some kind of eschatology. Hmm. Um, you know, there are of course, um, really vehement forms, you know, like left behind type forms, rapture ideas, all of that. That's one particular form of eschatology, but, you know, even in, in kind of more uh, liberal and broad minded forms, there is still this hope that eventually uh, the story will come to an end and goodness will triumph over evil. Hmm. Hmm. So, you know, we, we certainly have, Lots of narratives like that in Judaism. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. 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 All right. Well, this went deep. This went deep, man. Um, let me give the outro. Uh, thank you for listening to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and rabbi explore Exodus. Lost in the Wilderness is produced by Daniel Bogard and Carl Stevens and is made possible by Christchurch Cathedral in the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Uh, Lost in the Wilderness is part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album All Things Are Being Made New. Um, Daniel, where can people find you online? Uh, so I am going to continue my tradition of giving a plug for something. Uh, and that is, I lost a, uh, a dear lifelong friend this week, uh, Adina Talvi Goodman of a blessed memory who was an incredible, incredible writer. Uh, so I'd encourage you to f- Google her, Adina, A-D-I-N-A. Uh, and then if you type in the name of, uh, she had an award-winning short story. I must have been that man. Uh, it's gorgeous. It's a reflection on, uh, uh, her life as a recipient of a heart transplant, uh, and just, just gorgeous. I must've been that man, Adina Talvi Goodman, type it into Google. Uh, you'll be grateful you read it. Great. Thank you. And I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. Um, and I want to give a plug actually for an event, which I'll start plugging more and more, which is, uh, on April 7th, we're going to have the last event of the Exodus year, um, at which two of the authors of the commentaries we've been using will be present, uh, Terrence Fretheim and Carol Myers, uh, two really preeminent scholars. And, uh, they'll be joined by Mark Stevenson from Episcopal Migration Ministries, hmm. uh, which was actually... It was actually started in the Diocese of Southern Ohio um, in, I believe, the 20s or 30s. Uh, and uh, and so it's it's almost 100 years old now and a great organization. And also the bishop will be there. So that'll be April 7th at All Saints Church in Columbus. Um, and you can find more information about it at the adsobigread.org website. All right. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, I hope you travel back safely to Ohio. Thank you. Have a good week.